Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As we gather together in the Lord's house this weekend, it is the 11th Sunday after Pentecost, and we have our Old Testament reading from the prophet Isaiah chapter 56. It'll be verses 1 and then 6, 7, and 8. And then the epistle text is from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. It is chapter 11, verses 1 as well as 2a, the first part of verse 2, verses 13 through 15, and then also verses 28 to 32. So that one's definitely choppy, broken up a little bit, um, but it's trying to catch the overall focus of that chapter for you as you come to worship. And then the gospel reading is going to be from Matthew chapter 15. It's verses 21 through 28. Now, the overall theme for the weekend for these three scriptural passages is fairly easy to pick up on. The theme of these three scriptures together, uh, you can see it in each one, is that Jesus did not just come for the Jews. That the Messiah did not just come to Israel, but instead that God's salvation is open to all people. The hymn of the week this week is In Christ There Is No East or West, and that hymn picks it up so very beautifully as well. All people are God's people. He created all of us on this earth. He as 1 Timothy 2.4 says, desires that all people would be saved coming to the knowledge of the truth. Now, it's unfortunate that we don't, and the Romans text is going to pick up on that particular angle as well. But with this, so it's an easy and it's a crucial theme of the gospel, um, as I myself would be considered a Gentile, and there would be no salvation for me if it weren't for texts like these, that Jesus indeed has come for me as well. So while we have that very easy, very central and crucial theme of the gospel, nonetheless, two out of these three readings are still very difficult for our our hearers today. That would be the epistle and the gospel. So we'll talk about those things when we get to them. But for now, we're going to open up with our Old Testament reading. Again, this is Isaiah chapter 56. It's verses 1 and then 6 through 8. So we'll just read verse 1 first, and then we'll take the second chunk as well. Thus says Yahweh, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. As is common in the prophets, God speaks. This is the message that God is giving Isaiah to share with his people. So what does he say? Well, this is an instruction. It's a command that God's people would have justice in their land. And that they would be righteous in their land. And those two words are very closely connected to one another. By the time you get to the, the New Testament, the Greek language, you're going to see that as well. The word that we usually talk about to justify someone can also be translated, pronounced, or declared righteous. To justify someone is to make them right. 
is to make them righteous. So this word justice gets at the idea of the Ten Commandments, how we love our neighbor, how we care for our neighbor, and so then does the next phrase, do righteousness. So see to it that your neighbors are cared for. This is quite literally why God created us in the first place, is that we would care for his creation. And our neighbors, our fellow man, they are part of that creation that we were made to care for. So really this opening section is calling our attention to the Ten Commandments. It's calling our attention to what Jesus in the New Testament summarizes as the two purposes for the life of a Christian, that we would love the Lord our God, we would love our neighbor as ourselves. There is no justice apart from God. There is no righteousness apart from God. So if you want to know how to keep justice, if you want to know how to do righteousness, if you look at the world around you, you're going to see perverted forms of these things. And they're not, they're not holy. They're not good. What the world thinks is good for your neighbor is not what is good for your neighbor. And we could come up with a slew of examples of that. And we wouldn't have to look very far. The goal of this life and the, the mind of the world is some kind of happiness, comfort, a life without pain or suffering. That's not good for your neighbor. A life free of pain and suffering that is all about success and happiness tends to be a life that lacks God. Because in our pridefulness, which all of those things help aid, in our pridefulness, we rebel against the Lord. We think, I've done this for myself. Look at what I've stored up. Look at how well off I am. I will never have to worry about a thing. It is true that you need not worry, but it's not because of what you have. It's because of what God has done for you and is doing for you even now. That's one example. And again, we could name a slew of them. We could be here all day. As much as it is your ability to do so, keep justice, do righteousness. I'm going to phrase that that way because over the last couple of generations now, we've seen a couple of iterations of the same movement. Um, today, we're they're called social justice warriors. But, you know, 40, 50 years ago, it was called the social gospel. The social justice gospel. Paul's warning there in Galatians comes to mind. Galatians chapter 1, and early in the letter, he says that there is no other gospel. If anyone comes to you proclaiming another gospel than the one that you have already received, let him be accursed. Even an angel from heaven, Paul said. So the danger of the social justice movement that we see around us as it comes across the church is that it takes our eyes off of Christ. Our focus ends up latching onto something else, onto, one way to phrase it, I guess, would be we're focusing on the symptoms rather than the, the actual disease.
there will always be injustice in this world. There will always be oppression in this world. There will always be hate in this world until Christ returns. Now, again, as much as we can, we should keep justice and we should seek to do righteousness for our neighbors. We should love them. We should care for them how we can. But this is where the Lutheran conversation around vocation becomes so helpful. What are your vocations? And your vocations are the relationships that you have in life. So as a, for myself and as an example, my first vocation is I'm a child of God. I serve the Lord. Um, and so that faith that I have in him is to be the top priority in my life. It means going to church. It means reading God's word. It means praying. It means singing hymns with my kids and, and making sure they're reading God's word as well as we do that together as a family. Um, those are just some examples. So that's my primary vocation. Secondary is that I am a husband. My call to serve my wife is is the most important vocation in terms of world rela relationships that I have. So I care for my bride, and then I'm a father. I have four children that I care for, and then I'm many other things as well. I'm a pastor. I'm called to serve a flock here at St. Matthew Lutheran Church. I am a son. I'm a brother. I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend. Uh, I'm a co-worker. I'm all kinds of these different things. These are different vocations, Latin for calling, that God has placed before me. These are the ways that he has entrusted to me his creation to care for. Yes, there are people in the in the world, on the other side of the world, that need to be cared for. But I am not capable of caring for 8 billion people. I just don't have the ability to do so. That's God's job. He is entrusting to me on a smaller level, a much smaller level, certain individuals that I can care for. He is sharing the work of his kingdom. He is sharing the work of his family with his children. So I will do the best that I can. And where I sin, where I fall short, I repent and I ask the Lord to forgive. I ask the Lord that he would help me to be stronger um, and more faithful in my service in the future. So that's a helpful way to think this through. When we think of the commandments, when we think of loving our neighbor, Vocation is such a beautiful um, topic within our, within our theology. Now, the rest of verse 1, Soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. So God has just told us to do righteousness, and now he says that he will soon reveal his righteousness to us. Now, this is twofold. It's another example of twofold prophecy that is something that has a present meaning, or a soon-to-be meaning, and then it has a future meaning, which almost always points to Jesus. So the, the first meaning here, uh, this is a reference to the idea that Israel, well, not Israel, Judah, the southern kingdom, is destroyed in 587 BC. But his salvation will come, points to the raising up of King Cyrus, who is actually called out by Isaiah by name later in the book. King Cyrus will, will set the people of Jerusalem free from their Babylonian captivity. He'll let them return back to their homes. 
He even pays to help them rebuild God's temple in Jerusalem. So God's salvation will come twofold. First is that reference to Syria, uh, Persia conquering Babylon under King Cyrus. And then the second meaning is pointing us to Jesus, that second fulfillment of the prophecy finds its root in Jesus. My salvation will come. We went ahead and threw that out there on the church side. This is the promise that you have from Jesus, that soon he is coming again. It's the way God's word ends. If you look to the very end of the Bible, if you look to the last verse there of Revelation, well, second to last verse, that's what John teaches the church to pray. Amen, come Lord Jesus, in response to Jesus saying that he would return for us soon. And Jesus is the righteousness of God. So when he says he's going to reveal his righteousness to us, he has revealed his son to us. That is that word epiphany. So we celebrate that as one of the seasons of the church here, that God has revealed his son, his righteousness, his plan for salvation. He has made it known to us. A wonderful thing indeed. All right. So, I don't know, that's verse 1. Verses 6 through 8. And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to him, to love the name of Yahweh, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So this is where I said we were going in the opening. This is where we see this theme of the week that the gospel is going to be for all people. So verse 6, foreigners join themselves to the Lord, to Yahweh. And we know how this happened for the Old Testament covenant. It's not something most people today like to talk about. Whenever I bring it up, actually, people get all squeamish all of a sudden. But it's, it's that conversation around circumcision. And you actually see examples of that as you read your way through the Old Testament. Um, the idea that if somebody wanted to join the Israelites, if they wanted to join the household of God, they were to be circumcised. That brought them into the covenant. And then just like the Israelites after that, they were to keep the covenant. They were to do the festivals and, and the other things of that nature. And... We'll come back to that. Thankfully, in this, this day and age, uh, under the new covenant that we have in Jesus, circumcision is no longer part of that picture. Instead, we know of two ways that we come into the new covenant. And the first is mentioned by Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing. So the hearing of God's word, the proclamation that we have of Christ and him crucified, that is the first of two ways. The second is through baptism. 
Um, we know that baptism can grant faith to the one who is baptized. And this is a wonderful gift. We talk about it so frequently because of that very reason. Now, the foreigners are joined to Yahweh to minister to him. That's another way to say to serve. Um, so as you think of the angels in heaven, serving the Lord in his temple, caring for him. We don't really have the greatest understanding of what it's going to be like to be with God in paradise. What are we going to do is a question people often ask, and we really don't have the answer. This word, this phrase would be one of them, to minister to him, to serve him in his temple. It gets back to the language of the psalm that says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. To be humbly before the Lord in his court for a day is better than a thousand days living in your, your wealthy mansion here. Hands down. And we just don't have a full understanding of what that's going to look like yet, but that's the hope. That's the thing that Christians are looking forward to. All right. We see also that they would keep the Sabbath and not profane it. So the Sabbath comes up here and the question becomes, what's the Sabbath about? Not just what is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is rest. And that's what the word means. On the seventh day, God rested from his work of creation. It's Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning of the chapter really an extension of chapter one. So to rest, that physical act of rest is such a key important thing for us because it teaches us trust. In the end, that's what the Sabbath is ultimately about for God's people is that we would learn to trust in him. One of the ways I like to phrase this for people to help them see it it's like God looks at us and says that he has made this creation, everything around you, in six days. Do you trust that he can take care of you? Do you trust that if you take off one day a week, God can provide for you? That's what the Sabbath comes down to. It's a conversation around trust, which is uh, the Latin connection to the word faith. To trust in the Lord is to have faith in the Lord and in his promises. So here, keeping the Sabbath comes up, it teaches us, it helps us to be faithful, and to learn that faithfulness and what that means. Take a day off, rest, God can keep the world spinning. He has before you were here, and he will after you're here, unless Christ comes back first, in which case we get to live with him on the new heaven, the new earth, forevermore. The last phrase in verse 6 picks up the same theme, holds fast my covenant, that we've been talking about already, and that's the keeping of the Ten Commandments, as uh, where most people would take this. Um, you could take it back to the covenant with Abraham instead. I will be the Lord. I will be your God. 
you will be my people, that kind of language. So holding fast to the covenant is a reference in that regard to being a child of God, being part of his family and not being a rebel, not running away. Um, But ultimately, then that also shares still in the Ten Commandments. The, The Old Testament has a few different covenants, but they're so very well connected in that regard. As we look at verse 7, God will bring these foreigners to his holy mountain. So that's a reference both, again, twofold to Jerusalem, the holy city where uh, God has rooted the capital for the time, but also to the new Jerusalem, which we read about in the book of Revelation, right again near the end, chapter 21, talks about the new heaven, the new earth, the new city, the new Jerusalem. That's where we are longing for. And that's the hope, again, that we have as a Gentile. I get to be there. God is gathering me to himself. God is gathering you to himself. And this is such a wonderful, wonderful thing. You could also, with talking about the holy mountain here, talk about the mountain on which Jesus was crucified. And that's also Jerusalem. It's just outside the city gate. So that could be brought into this picture as well. That God is drawing people to the cross. God is drawing people to their salvation. This is, Jesus himself makes this comparison, and it's one that we often overlook. John 3.16 is the most famous verse in scripture, perhaps. It's so well known. Uh, You see it on the signs and banners at sporting events and whatnot. But the context of John 3.16 As Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, Jesus takes Nicodemus back to the Exodus, to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, who when they rebelled against the Lord, they they suffered a plague of fiery snakes. These snakes would bite them, and they would die. When the people cried out to the Lord, when they showed some repentance there, the Lord instructed Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole out in the wilderness. And when someone was bitten by one of these snakes, they could go to the pole. They could look up to the the bronze serpent on the pole and they would be healed. They would be cleansed of this plague that would bring death. Jesus in John 3 connects that Old Testament event to himself on the cross That as that serpent was lifted up by Moses on the pole, so God the Father has lifted up Jesus on the pole that is the cross for you and for me, that we, bitten by the plague that is our sin, the death that it brings, we can go to the cross, we can look to Christ lifted up on the cross and live. That's certainly connected to this. I mean, that's going to be the whole point as we've been talking about already. God makes them joyful, and that is because they are filled with him. They're filled with the hope that he gives, that we've been talking about. Now, he's going to accept their burnt offerings and their sacrifices on his altar. That's a big deal. Israel would not have been too favorable to this. The people of God would have probably pushed back against this. I mean, we see this in the the New Testament with the Pharisees, right? 
as Jesus is doing his ministry, he goes and he eats with the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the Pharisees get upset about it. But God is going to take the foreigners. He's going to take the people that aren't part of his covenant and he's going to gather them to himself. And so their prayers, their offerings, their sacrifices will be pleasing to him. Verse 7 wraps up with the phrase that God's house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus quotes that in Matthew 21 as he's turning over the temple uh, tables of the, the money changers. Um, Jesus quotes just a part of it, that the temple should be called a house of prayer, and then goes on to say that they have made it a den of thieves. So that shows up that all people can pray in God's house. I mean, that Jesus leaves that off, interestingly enough. It's for all peoples. Verse 8. Yahweh gathers the outcasts of Israel. So that's part of it. The remnant, those who remain faithful, even in the outcast, even in the rebellion against him that got them exiled, those who remain faithful, who repent and turn to the Lord, will be delivered. But it's not just those. I will gather yet others to him. Who is him? It's Jesus. I will gather yet others to Jesus, to the Savior, to the Lamb, besides those already gathered. Now this points to John chapter 10, verse 16, where Jesus, talking the, the sheep sheepfold shepherd language that he uses there in that chapter, ends up talking about how he has other sheep who are not a part of this sheepfold. And he must go out and gather. So again, the gospel being for not just the Jews, not just Israel, but for all people. And this is good news, again, for me, and I'm guessing for you as well. Now, as I mentioned, the epistle and gospel texts are a lot more difficult uh, for the hearer today than that Old Testament reading was. So we move on to our epistle text, which again is broken up across the whole of chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2a. So just the first sentence of verse 2. And then verses 13 through 15 and verses 28 to 32. So in total there, what is that? Five, eight, nine and a half verses. But they were trying to capture, the committee that put the lectionary together for us, they were trying to capture the theme of the chapter for you. So we didn't spend three weeks in Romans 11, but just this one look at it. As I say that, I'm looking at my calendar for next week, and we are going to pick up at the very end of Romans 11 next week, and then mostly reading in the beginning of chapter 12. Verses 1 and 2a. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That last word is going to be part of the difficulty here. So what becomes difficult with Romans chapter 11 
is this is where we get a false teaching that is so common in the churches of American Christianity today. That false teaching is the idea that God is going to save all the Jewish people simply because they are Jews, simply because they used to be his people. He's not going to turn on them. There's problems with that. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. But let's look at the text itself. Before we look at those issues, let's look at what God is actually saying in his scriptures. Verse 10, had uh, chapter 10, had focused on the idea that the Gentiles were being brought in. And that's going to be in chapter 11 as well. So, so we look at this idea from the Old Testament and now the New. Salvation being for all, not just for the Jew. That's where this text is essentially beginning. Because God has brought in the outsiders, because he's brought the Gentiles in, does that mean that he's rejected the Jews? Does that mean that they're left out, his original people? And Paul's response is one of his favorite lines, by no means, meganoita in Greek. He is emphatic, may it never be, may it never happen. I would be the like, really literal way to translate the meganoita phrase. He uses it 10 times in this letter, in case you were curious. You can go count them if you want. God has not rejected the Israelites. He's not rejected the Jewish people. And Paul uses himself as an example. Paul is a Jew, and he is not rejected. He is part of God's family. So God has not, as a whole, just taken every Jew that is alive and said, you're gone. This is just as true today as it was in Paul's day as well. We have Jews who are faithful, who actually trust in the promise, who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and then we have Jews who don't, the same as it was at the time of Paul. So Paul, you know, a little bit of his history, that he's from Abraham's descendants, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. So Benjamin being one of the two favorite sons for Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was Israel. Second favorite great-grandson? I guess, guess that's what that adds up to. But we had just read two weekends ago in Romans chapter 9. Paul was unpacking this. It is not the children of Abraham, like the physical descendants, the physical offspring of Abraham, they are not the children of God. But instead, it's the children of the promise. And Paul pointed to God's promise that he would give Abraham the son Isaac in a year's time. So Paul picks up on that, and he continues that theme. By being heirs of the promise, we are heirs of God. By being children of God's promise, that's the key concept there. The word that really hangs up in verse 2 there is for new. And within American Christianity today, you could say that this is a poor word choice for us to use in our English translation here. Uh, the Greek word is prognosko, which is, uh, pra is the prefix that means before, 
we use that one in English actually sometimes. We stick PRO in front of a word and it can it can do that exact same thing. Gnosko is the Greek word for to know. And so the the word is literally just means to know before. Now that could be a reference to God's foreknowledge, and it is used that way in other places, but it is also used in a separate way, which is the literal, the very basic, simple reading of the word. These are the people that God knew before. This is the first people of God. The people that God foreknew, he, he has not rejected them. He has not rejected the people he knew in the past that he had covenanted with in the past. Really, anything, they rejected him. He did not reject them. Again, God's salvation is open to all people. The way that we are damned is by ourself rejecting him. Not him rejecting us. So that four new word refers to past knowledge. Even in that even the other sense as we think of God's foreknowledge, that's still what the word really means. That's what foreknowledge means, is God knew something in the past. Thirteen to fifteen. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So Paul, now speaking to the Gentiles, which is true, uh, the book of Romans written to the Christian church in the city of Rome, I mean, the Romans, they're not Jews, they're Romans, they're Gentiles. They're part of the other nations of the world. That's what that word Gentile means, is just nations. So Paul is not speaking to a Jewish audience, he's speaking to a Gentile audience. And now he points out to them that his role in the work of God is to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Now that's a role that God has given to Paul it's a role we see alluded to a few different times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 22, verse 21 is an example of it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 8 is another. We also learn there that Peter was sent to the Jews. So we kind of have that distinction. The two main apostles, as we often will talk about Peter and Paul, Peter goes to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. And that's how they end up serving for the many years that they have remaining in their lives. But Paul, anyway, Paul, coming back to our text here, Paul is using his ministry to the Gentiles in hopes that it will help save the Jews. So even though Paul is not called to work with the Jews, he's hoping that his work will still benefit them. Let's, let's get to how. So magnify, draw attention to, uh, increase the focus on something. Paul is desiring that by sharing Christ with the Gentiles, that the Jewish people will see the Gentiles' faith. They will see the joy that the Gentiles have in Christ. And Paul uses the word jealous. They'll want it too. This really gets at the heart of our 
idea of evangelism today. I mean, one of the easiest ways to do evangelism is actually as a Christian to simply live as a child of God, to live with a life where we are trusting in the Lord. I mean, Paul talks about being content in all things. That's the meaning of Philippians 4.13, by the way. I can do all things through God who strengthens me. It's not, I can do all things. I'm not going to go outside and lift up my pickup truck. There's no point, for one. <laughs> I, I, you know, I guess if there was somebody trapped, God could work through that situation. But again, that's not what that verse is talking about. Paul's talking about contentment. He, he, he can suffer any situation. He can endure any situation because he trusts in the Lord. He is content. The early church really thrived on that topic. As they were being persecuted all around, their persecutors were seeing how Christians reacted to the suffering. How peaceful they were. How calm they were. How they didn't fear death. How they didn't seek revenge. They weren't fighting back against the, uh, those who would condemn them to death. They saw it and they wanted to know why. What is this hope that you have? Why are you not despairing? Why are you not angry? And as they, they had those kinds of conversations, and you see some of those in the book of Acts the apostles go before jailers, for example, even kings, in Paul's case. As, as that happens, they get to share the good news of Jesus. They get to share what that hope is that is in them. This is what Peter tells us to do in 1 Peter chapter 3, that we would always be ready to give an answer, the reason for the hope that is in us. We'd be able to defend that. This is evangelism. This is the, at the heart of evangelism. Sharing Christ with our neighbor. We use words. Certainly. Uh, we, we want to speak of Christ to our neighbor. But it often starts with just being content. Being joyful in what we have, and that doesn't necessarily mean happy. But we have a hope that cannot be taken away from us. And if we live in that hope each and every day in this world, a world of brokenness and darkness and despair, the people around us will notice. And many of them will come to ask you why. And that's your open door. And that's your opportunity to share Christ and Him crucified the joy and the hope that you have. Now, verse 14, we need to pick up on something here as well, because this gets at the idea, again, of that false teaching in our church that essentially says all of all of the Jews will be saved, all of Israel will be saved, and has that giant focus on restoring the kingdom of Israel now in the Middle East. Well, read verse 14. Paul, Paul's goal is to make his fellow Jews jealous and thus save 
some of them. So the very thought that he has to save some of them here, that they need saving, refutes the, the false teaching already in, in our churches today. They're not automatically saved because of their physical heritage. They need to hear the gospel. They need to become children of the promise, not just children of Abraham by birth. And the sum idea is also there, just a part. And this is three times actually in the chapter, back in verse 5 and verse 7, which we skipped over for today. But in those two verses, you see it a couple other times as well. Verse 15, a couple of interesting phrases. Their reconciliation, uh, their, their rejection means reconciliation of the world. The rejection, the rebellion of the Jewish people leads to the cross. That God's covenant people rebelled against him ultimately leads God to the sacrifice that saves creation. It leads us to Jesus on, again, that hill outside of the city gate of Jerusalem. This is one of his, really, it's, he doesn't use the phrase, but it's one of his how much more statements that he makes a couple of other times. He does it in verse 12, which we didn't get, and verse 24, which we also don't get. So these, he'll make a statement, and they'll say, how much more this? And really, that's the case here as well. If by rebelling against God, the Jews really led to the reconciliation, if their, their rebellion leads to the cross, leads to Jesus, how much more will their being of the faith lead to life? That is true of all people. It is our sins, you hear this phrase often enough, it is our sins that place Jesus on the cross. But by faith, we are raised from the dead. By faith, we live with him forever. Wonderful thing that that is. Our, our last paragraph, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Verse 28 and 29 are, again, that difficult section, the idea of the, the false teaching that all of the Jews will be saved. Verses 28 and 29 are really the, the crucial point that those theologians will make. This is where they'll go. I mean, this is, this is what they've got. And so we have to look at these verses very, very intently for that reason. First, it's worth noting how verse 28 opens. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. This is an idea that Paul has been repeating throughout the chapter. He said it in 12, 15, 19, 25. He's going to say it again in verse 30. 
the rebellion of the Jews against God has brought about good for you. Again, we saw that with what we were just talking about with the reconciliation of the world in verse 15. That's what the first part of the verse means. They are enemies for your sake. Because of their rebellion, you have Jesus today. That's not the hard part of the verse. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Now, lots of unpacking that we can do with verses 28 and 29 at this point. So they are beloved. Beloved by who? The referent isn't there. Certainly could be God. It could be other Jews like Paul who are of the faith. It could be us as we know that they are God's people, that he made them, that he cares for them, and so we love them. The reference just simply is not there for that verse, that verb. I guess that's that's not a... That is a verb. Okay. Verse 29, that the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Um, The Greek word there, irrevocable, is without regret. which really carries a different meaning than irrevocable. Irrevocable means you can't take something back. So I give you a dollar and you spend it. That's no irrevocable. I'm not getting that dollar bill back. That's a really poor example, I suppose. But irrevocable, something that once done can't be undone. I guess eating something might work in that as an illustration. I'm trying to think here. Marriage is one that we should go to, but our culture has long lost the idea that marriage is irrevocable. Um, that's part of our abandoning of God as a society. We don't believe what God actually says about marriage and divorce in his word. So, yeah, food's probably one of the easiest ones for us to see and understand. But there are other things that once done, you cannot take back. You cannot take back some of the harmful things that you've done to your friends. Um, If we were to get into a nuclear war this afternoon, once you press that button or turn the key or however the military would do it these days, that would be irrevocable an act of war that leads to great devastation. You simply can't take something like that back. That's not the Greek word here. The Greek word here is without regret. God does not regret what he has done. God does not regret the gifts that he has given. He does not regret calling the Israelites to be his people. They've rebelled. They've rejected him. They've turned away from him. But he still loves them. He still cares for them. And again, 1 Timothy 2.4, he still desires that they would be saved, that they would come to the knowledge of the truth instead of believing in the lies of the devil. Verse 30. Well, before we move into 30, let's, let's talk about the problems. I mentioned before there's some problems to the theology that all the Jews will be saved simply by nature of being Jews. If that's true, 
that causes some big issues. First, the concept here is when scripture verses are difficult to understand, we have to let scripture interpret scripture. So we look at verse 28 and 29 and we say, yeah, that's tough. Um, that doesn't seem to make sense with what we know from the rest of God's word. So what do we have in the rest of God's word uh, to help clarify what these verses could be saying? Well, we have more clarity at the beginning of this chapter. Again, the, the multiple verses that talk about how not all the Jews are going to be saved. We have Romans chapter 10 that does the same thing, uh, verses 10 through 13 in particular. We have the conclusion of the count that Jesus had of healing the centurion's uh, servant in Matthew chapter 8 specifically verses 10 through 12, where Jesus says that not all the Jews will be saved. So if all the Jews will be saved, we've just made Jesus out to be a liar and there is no salvation for any of us. The ending of Paul's letter to the Galatians in, in chapter 6 verses 15 and 16 is another part. So it, as we move from clear versus to unclear, from straightforward to confusing, we rely on clearer parts of scripture and we allow scripture again to help us interpret scripture. So it is because those other verses are so clear that when we look at these verses, we have to take a pause and say, okay, let's really, let's really look deeply at the language here and see what these verses could mean. Because they've caused so much confusion in the church. All right, verse 30 and 31, 32, um, these are also kind of tricky verses to wade our way through. In our disobedience, and this is again the reference to the there being enemies for our sake. In our disobedience, they disobeyed and we've received mercy. So when we were disobedient, when we were enemies of the Lord, the Jews rejected God and that led to Jesus. Now, they are being disobedient. They're in their rejection against God. And God has shown mercy to us in hopes that he may also show mercy to them. So it's trying to make a parallel here. Paul is trying to make that connection for us to help us see that God really cares for both groups of people. And as he worked through one group to help the other before, as he worked through the Jews to help Gentiles in the past, now he is going to work through the Gentiles to help the Jews today. That's kind of where that text is going. Verse 32 is the summary. God has consigned or imprisoned or enclosed, other ways you could translate that word, all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And again, we have to note with that, not everyone is saved. We're not universalists. We don't teach that everyone in the world is going to be saved because we know that's simply not true. But God, God seeks to have mercy on us all through the cross of Christ, his son. Now, I mentioned it was not just the epistle text, but also the gospel text this weekend is, in a different way, difficult. Common themes still exist, that God's salvation is open to Jew and Gentile alike. But really, verse 26 is going to be the tough one for most of our, our hearers today. So, Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, it's just one paragraph. So, I'll read it all together, and then we'll, we'll look at it. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. 
My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Before we get to those difficult words in verse 26, let's just look at the text. Let's walk our way through it. Our context here is the, in the chapter 15 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is going away from there. Where is there? Well, that's a reference to um, where he had been at the end of chapter 14 and then for the beginning of 15. Uh, at Gennesaret, which is west of the Sea of, well, northwest of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're looking at the Sea of Galilee to the north of the Jordan River, really just move your finger right to the northwest corner. And that's about where you would have found Gennesaret. Uh, it's just a little west of Capernaum which is a place that Jesus and the disciples spend a good amount of the time in the New Testament. But they've left there where they were interacting with the crowds and the Pharisees, which is important context as well. And now they've gone to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is not the first time Tyre and Sidon have shown up in the gospel. They showed up back in chapter 11 um, in terms of judgment. And that's an Old Testament judgment that God had destroyed them because of their unfaithfulness, uh, their idolatries in the past. And so now Tyre and Sidon remain these regions in the area. So they're, they're west of the Sea of Galilee. So if you're looking at the map again, draw your finger over to the Mediterranean Sea and then just go north a little bit. And the, the lands that your finger is crossing there uh, as you move northward, those lands would be Tyre and Sidon. So they're regions right up against the Mediterranean Sea off to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where the disciples and Jesus go for this next account of this next event. And they meet there a Canaanite woman. Now, the Canaanites used to inhabit what we call Israel today. When God promised Israel, the promised land, when he made them that promise of a land that would be flowing of milk and honey, it was the land of the Canaanites, at least in part. Um, and the Canaanites were to be driven from that land. Again, judgment, they were idolatrous. They did not trust and follow the Lord. So he had the right to do so. Uh, he was going to take the land from them and give it to Israel. So here's one of their descendants, a woman many years later. And she comes out and she makes this wondrous statement of faith. Now, you could talk about and debate amongst yourselves how many actual different statements that show her faith are in this verse. Um, have mercy on me uh, shows that she has faith, right? She believes that this Jesus guy is capable of having mercy on her, is capable of actually acting and doing something on her daughter's behalf. That shows faith, trust. She trusts that he can do something. Then she says, O oh Lord, 
So she uses the title in Greek, it's uh, the word kurios, which is where we get kyrie. For those of you who use the, the liturgy in your church, uh, the kyrie, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Kyrie eleison is the, the Latin phrase there, uh, and the Greek connection as well. So this is the Greek word for Lord that she uses. And then she calls him son of David, which is a title for the Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for. So it's a statement of faith. And then again, the, the idea that her daughter is oppressed by a demon. Well, nobody can do anything about that. There are no doctors. There are no physicians that can heal demon oppression. She thinks Jesus can do it. So at maximum, I guess we have four different examples that illustrate her faith here. I think you'd probably end up calling it two. Um, you could even argue, I guess it's only one. Um, there is no comma in between Lord and Son of David in the Greek. So that's one title that she's using. And then the first and the last parts of the sentence show her faith and trust that Jesus can do what she she needs done for her. So those are one and the same. You could, again, so I would argue for two, but you could merge them both together that it is because he is the Messiah that he can do this for her. Not sure how much we need to nitpick that, but just kind of examining it. These, this this is a very, very um, trusting and faithful woman. These, the words that she just spoke, that is one faithful sentence uh, that she has just given as in an introduction of herself to the Lord. And then, and this part bothers people, Jesus doesn't even bother to respond to her, to acknowledge her. That's tough. But the reason for it is to teach. Jesus didn't come to do miracles. He came to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's going to do so in this account through this Gentile woman. The Canaanites are other nations. They're not Jews. So they're other nations. They're Gentiles. Just as we were looking at in Romans and, and Isaiah as well. Jesus is going to teach his disciples that salvation is not just for them. It's not just for the Jews. That's the point of the text. So let's get there. All right, verse 23, Jesus ignores her, basically. I mean, he didn't really ignore her, but he doesn't respond to her. I mean, he heard her. That's why I say he wasn't ignoring her. Now, look at the disciples' response. They come to Jesus and they beg him to send her away. For she is crying out after us. That doesn't really give us the reason. We have to, I guess, take the implication of it. They're annoyed. They're agitated. They're bothered. They're tired over hearing her crying out over and over again. That's essentially the picture being laid out for us there. But remember, remember back just a couple of chapters ago to the feeding of the 5,000 and the context of that event, Jesus had just learned and this is chapter 14. Jesus had just learned that his cousin, John the Baptist, was executed. So he's grieving. He's hurting. He's tired from all the work he's already been doing in that time. And so he gets on the boat to go to a, a place where he can rest and get some quiet time and recover uh, and grieve. And 
when they land, there's a whole crowd waiting for them, and they're filled with sick people. And what does Jesus do? Does he send them away? No, he has compassion, and he heals them. And then, after he's done that, and the disciples say it's getting to be late, it's getting to be evening, send them away so they can get themselves some food, does Jesus do it? No, he says, you feed them. And Jesus cares for the people again. He provided for their needs. And we're going to see him do the same exact thing here. He's going to provide for this woman and for her needs. But the disciples have to make the connection here. They just don't get it. Jesus had compassion on that giant crowd, and he didn't send them away. Even though the disciples wanted him to it one point of it. Now the disciples again want him to send this woman away and Jesus is not. He's going to have compassion for her. Verse 24. Jesus finally speaks to the woman. And he says what he's already told the disciples five chapters ago. Back in chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, as Jesus was sending out laborers into the harvest, as he was sending the disciples out to share the word that the kingdom has come near, he told them to only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and not to go into the, the lands of the Gentiles. And so he's bringing that point up here with this woman. Jesus was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This gets us also back to our epistle text. Uh, their rejection leads to um, the reconciliation of the world, not just the Jews. So Jesus was sent to the Jews, but as they reject him, that salvation became open to all. Kind of the picture we're getting here. Now, how does she respond to that? She's not an Israelite. She's not one of their lost sheep. She's not one of those people of God from before that he foreknew. Doesn't stop her. She shows humility. She comes before him. She gets down on her knees. She kneels before him. She says, Lord, help me. Which again shows that faith. She uses the title again. But she also shows that she knows that Jesus can help. Even though he just turned her down, she knows he can help. And so she asks again. And Jesus responds again. And this is the one that I think angers people the most today. Our culture teaches us to recoil at a verse like this, that Jesus could have possibly said something like this to her. But not only does she not recoil or get offended or get upset, she acknowledges it. And she keeps pleading. Now, let's look at what he actually said to her. It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Um, the reference here, well, simple enough, that when you make a meal, the meal is for your family. It is not for the rest of creation. Um, it's not for the dogs, whether it's a pet or a wild animal. It's not for something else. You've made the meal for a purpose. Jesus has been sent for a purpose to the family, to the called, to the children of God, and not to the rest of the world, is kind of the statement here, just as it was the statement in verse 24 as well. And so, 
the the reference then is that they are outsiders they are less than is the idea of verse 26. We get to verse 27 though and again she she acknowledges it and she keeps pleading yes lord yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table it's a wise response it's a quick response you could say it's a witty response if you wanted to uh, she's she's showing her faith again not only in pressing forward in her request but now in the language of it eat the crumbs just a crumb she acknowledges that just a crumb of jesus ministry is all she needs it's all that it would take to do what needs to happen for her family that's such a wonderful expression of this woman's faith and i mean really we could think of that too just a crumb of jesus just a crumb from jesus would be enough just a crumb from jesus would be enough for me would be enough for you and yet what do we have do you have just a crumb of jesus no not at all you have all of him he laid down his life for you giving up not just a part of him not just a crumb of him but all of him that you might live that you would have life that never ends and now we get to enjoy that i mean we think of it in the the terms of the lord's supper that we celebrate together as we partake of christ's body and blood not just a crumb but the very forgiveness of our sins and life in his name. And the promise that we have in him is that there is a banquet, a heavenly banquet that is awaiting us where we get to feast forevermore, not crumbs, but in the fullness of paradise. And she gets it. And Jesus responds to her, O woman, great is your faith. It's an interesting statement um, that he, he really contrasts throughout the gospel. So five times Jesus speaks this way, that essentially because of the, the strength of someone's faith, he has provided the miracle that has brought about the healing that they were seeking. So you've got the centurion, Back in chapter 8, in chapter 9, you get the friends uh, who brought the paralytic man before Jesus. You also have the bleeding woman and the blind men. And now here in chapter 15, we get the Canaanite woman. So in those five separate occasions, Jesus mentions the connection between faith and miracles. On five separate occasions, Jesus also calls his disciples people of little faith. Sometimes it's just the twelve. Sometimes it's the disciples with the crowd. Um, but it's just interesting to see the contrast between those two things in Matthew's gospel. Um, can't speak any more to it. Just a curiosity, uh, certainly in the text, that both of those things occur five times each. The contrast that Matthew is sharing with us between faith and 
and I, a lack thereof. Now, Jesus speaks that to her and says, be it done for you as you desire, and it happens. Jesus speaks, and it happens. Just as the woman believed, just as she trusted, he could do it, and he did. And Jesus speaks, and it happens. Now, again, people get hung up on Jesus calling her a dog here. It's not exactly what's happening. He's saying that she's not a part of the kingdom of God. She's not, a, well, that's not the right way to say it. She's not a part of the covenant of the Old Testament. She's not a part of the family of God at that point. And so he has not been called to serve her. And yet we know from this text, from the other texts, from the wholeness of Scripture, that he not only serves her, he dies for her, just as he has done for you and for me.